in prayer before the Father. Lord, the desire of our hearts this morning is to bow down and worship and adore the one who has paid it all. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have given us a justification. You have given us salvation. You have given us redemption. Father, we thank you that you have sent your only begotten Son so that you might give us that which we lacked, so, might, so that we might have that which we needed. Lord Jesus, today as we have worshipped, today as we have come to this place to raise our voices, to open our hearts, Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us. Lord, we need you personally. And you know the needs that each of us have deep down inside. Deep down beneath our smiley faces, our nice clothes, there's a soul. There's a soul that hungers for you. Or perhaps there's a soul that is trying to fulfill that hunger in different things in our lives, in our possessions, in our jobs, in our relationships. Father, this morning we pray for, for our own individual needs and we pray that you enable us to find our satisfaction in you and you alone. Father, this time we also pray for our congregation, for our church. We are a time in which we seek your direction for the future of our church. As we are assembled in this place, Lord, I, we're asking that you clarify to us what is the mandate that you're giving us as a congregation that meets every week here on Mopac. Lord, as our deacons and our church council meet tonight, I pray that you would lead us in understanding what is it that you want us to do in the future. Who should we be? What should we pursue? Lord, we pray as Moses prayed, do not let us go into the future from this place without your presence being with us. Father, we pray for the, for the needs of our congregation. Lord, we also pray for the needs of individual members in our congregation. Especially, Lord, our hearts go for Alice and Dick. Lord, you know the, the, the long suffering that Alice has been going through. Father, we pray that in this time you continue to be by her side. We pray that you continue to strengthen her. And Lord, we pray that you would touch Dick as well, that you would give him perseverance and strength as he continues to be faithful in caring for his wife. Lord, I pray for those others that are, that are sick in their bodies, that are, that are kneeling, needing your, your healing. Lord, I pray that you uh, touch them. I pray that you give them perseverance. I pray for those who are still grieving their lost ones. Lord, I pray for Sue Kidwell. I pray that you continue to be by her side. Father, we also pray for those needs that we may not know, but you know we are a people in need of your presence, in need of your touch. So would you give that to us today, Father? Lord, we also this morning pray for the preaching of your word in all the churches around the world. Let your word be proclaimed clearly and faithfully. Lord, especially we pray for the churches in the Austin Baptist Association. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would allow them to remain confident in the power of your word to transform our lives in our city. 
Lord, we pray this morning specifically for the Austin Christian Fellowship and for its pastor, Will Davis Jr. I pray that you enable them to spread the gospel with zeal and faithfulness. And Lord, I pray for our church this morning, for us right here in this place. I pray that you would take away any obstacles that stand in, in the way between you and us. Cleanse us of our sins and restore to us the joy of your salvation. Give us this morning a willing spirit to hear your word spoken to us. We pray these things in the wonderful name of our Savior who justifies us from our guilt and who proved God to be just. In his name we pray. Amen. If those of you, for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, I would like to introduce you to the sermon series that we have been doing every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, this year at Park Hills, we are addressing different meanings of the cross of Christ. And the question that we have been asking is the following. What did the death of Christ on the cross accomplish for us? At a very general level, we could simply answer that he accomplished our salvation. And that is very true. That is very correct. But there's another sense in which the death of Christ or His salvation has so many facets in Scripture that we have taken the time every, every Sunday, every weekend when we celebrate the Lord's Supper to go through those meanings. And it, it's meanings such as redemption, propitiation, there's a word for our spelling, forgiveness, justification, Substitution, reconciliation, adoption, sanctification. And these are some of the facets of what Jesus has died on the cross, what he did as he died on the cross for us. And we have already looked at some of these. We have looked at redemption, propitiation, forgiveness, and substitution. And today we approach the fifth meaning the death of Christ means justification. Would you open Scripture to Romans chapter 3? We're going to be reading from verse 21 to verse 31. Verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 31. This is one of those passages that is, it is worth memorizing. It is one of those passages that is so thick, so rich, that it is worth having committed to our memory so that we can think upon it and meditate upon it day in and day out. The word of the Lord for us in Romans 3, 21, following, says the following. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the, the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He, left, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished 
He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Let us pray for our hearts and for this word. Father, teach us to see with fresh eyes the good news of justification. Enable our understanding to pass beyond that which is familiar to us and stir our hearts to be moved by the demonstration of your righteousness for our justification. Lord, these are big theological words, but I hope and pray that they become practical for us. Lord, help us to see what we hear so that your word might actually influence the way we live for you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The word justification. What do you mean? What do you understand when you hear it? In our day-to-day language, our society uses this word justification uh, fairly rarely, but they use it nonetheless. Uh, For example, uh, you might hear somebody say, What is your justification for engaging in this behavior? A parent might say to a child, not really, they they wouldn't use the word justification, but an employer might use this language for an employee. Or somebody who is in an argument and has to prove their position might say, I have to justify my view in the sense of, I have to give reasons for my position. Now, when we come to Scripture, the word justification has a completely different, completely different definition. In both the New Testament and the Old Testament, the original words for justification also meant righteousness. All throughout throughout Scripture, the idea of justification or justifying meant to be declared righteous before God. The question of justification is the question, how can man be made right with God? Or, to be more specific, how can a guilty man be declared righteous before a holy God? In ancient secular Greek, the notion of righteousness had primarily an ethical connotation in the sense of, and we might here have the same idea, in the sense of this phrase, a righteous man is a good man. Have you heard that? A righteous man is a good man. He's a virtuous man. And that's the way the Greeks thought of righteousness. But let me say this. That is not 
the biblical meaning of righteousness. The primary meaning, the primary emphasis of the meaning of the word righteousness had to do not with ethical connotations, not with our morals, not with our virtues, but it had to do with a legal status before God. So much so that Leon Morris, in his famous book uh, called The Apostolic Preaching of the Gospel, of the Cross, uh, says the following, basically, the righteous man is a man who is accepted before God. Thus, it is justification and righteousness refers to a legal standing, not a moral standing. Now, we, we might illustrate this difference between a legal standing and a moral standing by the following example. Imagine a criminal who's guilty of a crime and he's sentenced for life. Now, while in prison, he has one of those transformational moments. Somebody brings the gospel to prisoners. He hears the gospel and the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms his life. And he becomes... He becomes a new being, a new person, a new man. And his nature starts changing. His character starts changing. His behavior starts changing. His virtues start changing. But even if he's a new man, even though he's a new man, his verdict still remains the same. He still has to carry out the sentence. His legal verdict of being guilty still remains the same. And just because his nature has changed, just because he's now a completely new person, does not mean that his legal status has changed. And that is the distinction, dear friends, between justification and our moral standing before God. Let me read another example, another illustration from the words of Jesus in Luke 18, uh, verse, 19 to 20 to 14, verse 9 to 14, Jesus gives a parable uh, to some people, and here's who are the people he speaks to. Here, here are the people, here's his audience. Uh, to those who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed out about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. And I pause for a second, and as a, as a pastor, I say, wow, I would love to have a man like that in the church. But then the parable goes on and Jesus says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus continues, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. You see, friends, this parable illustrates that the main question every human being has to answer is what makes us justified before God? 
And we have to be clear that justification is a legal term. It refers to a legal status, and thus we're not allowed to confuse it with sanctification. If we could, if we could differentiate, or if we could understand the difference between justification and sanctification, here's the best illustration I found. It's an illustration that, uh, that John Murray uh, has, has given in his book on the atonement. He says, the difference between justification and regeneration or sanctification is the difference between a judge and a surgeon. A surgeon, when he has to remove a tumor from our body in order to fix us, he has to get inside, to deal with our inside, to change something inside. Not so with a judge. When a judge has to remove our guilt status, all he has to do is declare us just. In a similar way, justification is an act by which God declares us righteous, not God making us righteous. It is an act in which God declares us righteous. And there's a major misconception people have today. And here's, here's what they, they think many people, Christians or non-Christians. To live righteously means to live rightly, which leads to be made right with God. And that is false. Can you say with me, that is false? That is false. Leon Morris said again, justification is the name given in the Bible to the changed status, not the changed nature. By the grace of God in two months, if we're going to be alive, I'm going to talk about sanctification. But today we're talking about justification. It's a changed status, not a changed nature. And with this definition in mind, let's go back to Romans 3, 21 to 31 and see how do we get justified before God. Now in these verses, in these 11 verses that we read, the words for justification or righteousness appear nine times. So clearly, the notion of justification and righteousness are a controlling theme in this passage. What is Paul teaching about justification? What is he teaching us about justification? Four things. I hope they're easy. Justification needed. Justification revealed. Justification explained and demonstrated. And number four, justification applied. Four things that Paul is teaching us about justification. Now, why is justification needed? Why should we know about it? Why should we talk about it? And here's a big one. Why should we be so clear about it that we can share it with others? Two reasons. Why is justification needed? First of all, because of because guilt is universal. Now, before getting to this text, the text that we read, Paul spent three chapters talking about the wretched condition of every man and woman in this universe. And he began in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, with the Gentiles and how wretched they were. And then he moved to describe the Jews. Now, Paul's aim in, in chapter 1 to 3 is to convince his readers that they too are included in the story of fallen humanity. But do you know who did Paul have the hardest time to convince about this condition? 
it was not the Gentiles. Paul, in Paul's view, the Gentiles needed justification because they were moral, moral wrecks. But do you know who else needed justification? The Jews too. And it is the Jews who, who need most of Paul's time and argument to convince them that they too need justification. Now, the Jews needed justification for a different reason than the Gentiles. The Jews uh, needed justification not because they were moral failures, as the Gentiles were, but because they were moral keepers. And despite their best efforts, Paul says, their morality was not good enough. And that's why Israel thought that obeying the law would make them righteous. After all, Romans 2.13 says, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who he will declare righteous. That was a Jewish argument. But though, even though Jews had the law which told them about God's righteousness, Paul continues later in chapter 3, verse 9, and he says, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Referring to him and the Jews? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. It is for it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And finally, Paul brings his argument to an, to an end in trying to convince the Jews that they too need justification. In, in chapter 3, verse 20, he speaks directly to the Jews who thought that by obeying the law could obtain a righteousness, righteous status before God. He says in, in 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. It is very easy, dear friends, brothers and sisters, to conclude from, from the emphasis that Paul gives to convince his Jewish fellows that the main point of this passage is to try to convince Jews, the Jewish people, of their need of justification. But if that's all we get, we miss the force of this text. The force of this passage is to convince anyone who thinks that they are not included in this story of humanity's wretchedness that they too, they too are declared unrighteous before God regardless of their reasons. Immoral Immoral Gentiles ignored God altogether and thus stood guilty before God. Moral and devout Jews pursued righteousness in their own strengths and efforts and still remained guilty, not because they lacked morality, but because they were so full of it that they boasted in it. So the message of Romans 1 and 2 and 3 ends on this note. It doesn't matter from which camp you come. You remain guilty before God. That's why Romans 3.23 is sort of like an encapsulation of everything that Paul had tried to do in the first three chapters of Romans. He says, For all have sinned and now are lacking the glory of God. All. Friend, if you're hearing this message, chances are that you have been found guilty before God, whether you realize this or not. So the first reason why we need justification, why justification is needed, is because of our guilty status, because of our universal guilt. But there's another reason why Paul, give, why Paul talks about justification as needed. 
verse 19, a, a verse prior to the passage we read, Paul says, the whole world is held accountable to God. The whole world is held accountable to God. In other words, justification is needed because divine judgment is universal. Now, there's a major misunderstanding we have to correct. There are Christians today who think that God appears more wrathful in the Old Testament and more merciful in the New Testament. Let me address this misunderstanding briefly by reading from the New Testament a passage that describes the future. Although another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle, still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them in the, gray, in the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress wine outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the pressing rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Revelation 14. You know what this means? 1,600 stadia is a distance of 180 miles. I want you to imagine Austin driving all the way to North Dallas, about 180 miles. Matt, you just did that distance, right? And I want you to imagine that entire territory with blood to the level of the horse's bristles, bridles. You think tsunami was bad? And it's not water. It's blood. Whose blood? From where? Verse 19 is telling us it's from the winepress of God's wrath. Is this a less wrathful God? Why is it that we have an idea that in the Old Testament God is more wrathful and in the New Testament God is more merciful? D.A. Carson, one of the very well-known theologians that we have today, says the following on this question, on this misunderstanding. It is because in the Old Testament, most of the ex expressions of God's wrath are temporal. And we are so present-oriented that we are afraid of war, plague, and disease. We don't really believe in hell. So when it comes to the eternal descriptions of judgment in the New Testament, they do not seem nearly as frightening as the plague and the sword. But just because God's wrath is, is not immediate and it's not physical in the New Testament does not mean that God is less wrathful in the New Testament. If anything, everything in the, Old, in the New Testament tells us that the God of the New Testament escalates in His wrath. Rather than creating a caricature of God that is wrathful in the Old but merciful in the New, a better way to understand the portrait of God in the storyline of the Bible is to say that whatever is pre presented in the Old Testament is heightened in the New Testament. His mercy is elevated, but so is His wrath. 
if in the Old Testament, wrath was usually describing as immediate and very physical. In the New Testament, the wrath of God is described in universal and eternal dimensions. And that's why, dear friends, that's why we need justification. Because the whole world is going to be held accountable to God. Do you realize, my friend, that this combination of the two points we just made, of the fact that everyone is guilty before God and that the whole world will be judged by God, that this combination of these two points is a deadly combination? I mean, deadly. That's why we need justification. Justification needed, justification revealed, verse 22 and 23, uh, 21 and 22. Uh, Paul, once he state, stated the, the need that we, are, we stand guilty before God, every one of us, and we will be judged by God, every one of us, Paul goes on in verse 21 and says, But now, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed. Now consider this a summary of everything that Paul is saying in this entire letter of Romans. Consider this a summary of everything the New Testament is saying to us. This is the core of the gospel. And, and the rest of the verses from this point on will be just an explanation of this bomb that he just dropped on his hearers. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been revealed. A few things about this righteousness that has been revealed. Paul says, it's been a righteousness from God. Now, this is not a moral quality. God is now exhibiting, finally, his moral qualities. He's been doing that all the way from the beginning through giving the law. After all, it says that, that the law and the prophets were witnessing, were testifying about this righteousness. So this righteousness is not a moral exhibition of God's righteousness, God's qualities. It is literally, we could say, but now a justification from God has been made known. The point is, that the origins of this righteousness, the origins of this justification come from above. They're not worked up from below. The other thing he says about this justification, this righteousness, is that it's apart from the law. Now, this phrase is tricky. It has two, two meanings depending on what it modifies. If, you mod if it modifies, if you see that it modifies the notion of righteousness from God, the idea is the following, uh, that God is now revealing a new kind of righteousness, a righteousness that is not based on the law. And that's the impression the NIV gives us. But there's another possibility, and actually I think a better possibility is the second, second possibility, and it's the following. The phrase, apart from the law, does not modify righteousness from God, but modifies has been revealed. According to the second view, the meaning of this, of this verse would say, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed apart from the law. Do you see the difference? The difference is that now God is revealing His righteousness, the same righteousness which the Old Testament has witnessed, which the Old Testament pointed to. It's the same one. God is not revealing a new kind of righteousness in the, in the New Testament. What, he, what has changed is the way he reveals it. Now it's no longer through the law. Now it's a righteousness that he reveals through Christ. And because it's revealed in a different way, it's accessible not only to Jews but to everybody else. 
What, what, what Paul is saying here is that this righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ and it's revealed apart from the law and therefore all can be beneficiaries of it. Now here's what it means for us, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters. If I ask you, a believer, are you justified before God? And you, ask, you start counting how many times you've read your Bible this week or how many times you come to church, or how much you're serving in the church, you have the wrong idea about justification. Or if you're telling me that you walked down the aisle when you were a child, or that you prayed a prayer and got baptized, and that's how you know you're justified, you're not understanding justification. You might understand repentance, but not justification. You see, friends, justification is that which God alone has done for us in Jesus Christ. If you point, when I ask you about justification, if you point to what you have done, you miss it. Dear friends, it's because of this misconception that many people imply the following, that since they are not doing bad things, that they must be in a right relationship with God. Or, since they are doing a lot of good things, they must be in a right relationship with God. False. Why? Because what makes us right with God is not our righteous living, but only what God has done for us in Christ. Friend, you cannot make yourself acceptable to God. Only the blood of Jesus can make us acceptable to God, and all we can do is believe that. Justification needed, justification revealed, justification explained and demonstrated. We saw why justification is needed. We saw uh, how it is revealed, but, but there are two more questions. How is this justification possible? And why did God have to demonstrate it? Look at why, how is it that, that God was able to make this justification possible? In verse 24, Paul says, and we are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. In other words, here's how justification was made possible. Because Christ redeemed us through His blood. Without redemption, God could not declare us right. Without redemption, God could not declare us righteous before Him. And that's what, that's what this first reason says. Remember, we said that justification, the meaning of justification or righteousness means to be put in a right relationship with God. Well, sin ruptured that relationship. And the only way God could declare us righteous back is if He brought us out, if He brought us back to Himself. And that's possible because He redeemed us. But there's a second reason why justification is possible. It's because, verse 25, God presented Christ as a propitiation or as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, remember the, that long sermon, that hard sermon on propitiation a few months ago, where we said about propitiation that it pointed to the fact that God's wrath had to be satisfied if God wanted to declare us right with Him. Now, if redemption points to our need to be rescued, propitiation points to God's need to have His wrath satisfied. We have to understand these dual needs. On one side, we have a need to be rescued. On another side, God has a need 
to be satisfied in his wrath. In order for God to justify us, his wrath had to be appeased. And this took place by presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation. And then twice in this passage, Paul says, that the, the, says the phrase demonstrated his justice. Verse 25, he did this, namely he, he, he presented Christ as a propitiation to demonstrate his justice. And then in 26, he said it again. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. Now here's a question. Why did God need to demonstrate his justice? Wasn't it enough to be revealed? Why did he have to demonstrate it? Look at the way verse 25 ends. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That's right. With all the wrath we see in the Old Testament, with all the reaction God has against sin in the Old Testament, the New Testament verdict is still that the Old Testament sins have been left unpunished. Doug Moo, one of the New Testament theologians, says the following on this verse. He says that this verse, even though we, had, we have the impression that in the Old Testament God was more wrathful than in the New Testament, in the Old Testament period God did not punish sins with the full severity he should have. People who sinned should have suffered spiritual death because they did not have an adequate sacrifice to atone for their sins. But in His mercy, God passed over their sins. And in doing so, He, act, he however, acted against His character, which, res, which requires that He responds to sin with wrath. So there's a sense in which God really did not punish the sins of the Old Testament in the full severity they should have deserved. In the Old Testament, God is letting those sins forbear, go by, go over. And that is not right with God. God cannot let sin go by unpunished. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, God would accuse His people for declaring the, the guilty right and for, not, for, 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 for punishing the, the innocent. And if He did that in His justice, if God would accuse His people for doing that, what would make God righteous when He lets the unpunished go free? There is a need for God to be demonstrated that He is just, even though He let the sins of the Old Testament unpunished. That's what this passage is talking about. And the demonstration, the point why He did it is that so that at the present time, verse 26, He demonstrated His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. The demonstration of this justice is not because, just because we needed it. The demonstration of this justice is because God needed it. The English theologian P.T. Forsyth said, insisted that justification is the justification of God as well as that of man. And he said, actually, the justification of man comes before the, justifi the justification of God comes before the justification of man. So we saw that justification is needed, that justification is revealed, that justification is explained and demonstrated, and fourthly, justification applied. What does this mean? What does this mean for us? Two points briefly. 
if, in verse 27, Paul says, No more boasting. Where then is boasting? It is inclu- ex- excluded. This means, dear friends, that when we truly understand justification, it leaves no room for boasting. Remember how at the beginning of the sermon we said that while the wretchedness of the Gentiles displayed uh, that they were, was displayed through their utter moral failure, they were completely wretched, the wretchedness of the Jews was displayed by their boasting in keeping the law. And the implication is this, that justification leaves no room for boasting. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, that, that, that's the Jews. We, you know, we're, we're Southern Baptists here in the 21st century. Let me, let me say to you one of the phrases that gave me a lot of pain. I've heard it at a national convention of the Southern Baptist Convention. One of the speakers say this phrase, we Baptists, we Southern Baptists are the best that God has on earth. We have to repent. If we have in our hearts any feelings of superiority because we are a certain denomination, and it might be corporate, it might be individual, but when we have the impression that God ought to be really proud of us, because gosh, we are the best He's got on earth, that just flies flat against any clear understanding of justification. You see, my friends, when we understand justification, it doesn't puff us up. It doesn't give us a, that secret sense of superiority that we are better than you guys because we got the right theology. Because we, we are the people of the Bible. We believe the Bible and you're not. Friends, we cannot, believe, we cannot adore, we cannot encourage any sense of superiority if we truly understand the meaning of justification. The true sign that we understand what God has done for us is not in boasting, but in humility. We don't claim to be better than other people. We actually ought to see better our indebted need of the God who justifies us by faith in the blood of Christ. So the first implication of justification applied is no more boasting, no more room for boasting. Number two, no more conflict with the law. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all, rather we uphold the law. Now, for, for the Jews, this was a real obstacle. If, if we put so much focus on faith, what, where's the place of the law? Is it nullified? That was their concern. Paul's answer is very strong. It's a very strong negation. By no means, no way. In other words, Just because the law plays no role in our justification, it does not mean that it is not important. Actually, Paul says that Paul is establishing the law. Now, what does this establishment mean? First of all, the law remains an adequate pointer to God's holiness. The law continues to, to have a role in shaping our lives, in teaching us about God's decrees, but the law has no role in obtaining our legal status before God. A question that I hear often when I engage in conversation with people from Catholic backgrounds or other religious backgrounds where works are very crucial, they ask, if we put so much focus on faith alone, what about the works? 
And the best I can summarize the difference between Protestant theology and others like the Roman Catholics on the notion of justification and, and works is this. According to the Council of Trent and, and the documents of the Vatican II Council, the Roman Catholic theology says this, faith plus works equals justification. In Protestant theo theology, faith equals justification plus works. We have to get that clear. It is not faith plus works equals justification. It is faith equals justification plus works, period. To claim that our works contribute anything to our justification is to de deny the core of the gospel. Our legal status before God is declared righteous only through faith in the blood of Christ. We look today at four points. Justification needed, justification revealed, justification explained and demonstrated, justification applied. But let me say this, dear friends. All this talk about justification is valueless unless it is applied to your heart. Are you justified with God? Have you experienced God's justification? Before we're, we are approaching the Lord's Supper, I would like to make an invitation to anyone who might be hearing this message. If today you have heard this message that the righteousness from God has been revealed and it is by means of this righteousness that you too can be justified, if you believe this good news, God wants to declare you righteous now. Not tomorrow, not on the day of judgment, but now. We will have a time of silent prayer for all believers as we prepare our hearts to remember and to proclaim the Lord's death. And in this time, as the, as the music, as the piano will start playing, if you hear, heard God speaking to you, and you would like to experience God's righteousness and His justification, I invite you to put your faith in Christ to put your faith in the blood of Jesus shed for you, to redeem you, and to take away the wrath of God that was displayed against you. Let us pray. Father, how can we allow this difficult theological term such as justification have an impact in our lives today, every day. Lord, it is only through your Holy Spirit. And we pray that the words we have heard would be applied to our hearts, to our lives. I pray that we would experience that blessedness of being declared justified before you through the blood of Jesus. Lord, enable us to prepare our hearts to commemorate and to declare that which brought us the justification, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you would like to respond to the call of the gospel, I invite you to come forward. If in your heart you have never experienced the blessedness, the peace, 
that you have found favor with God because of his declaration today you can experience that would you respond